May I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, despite the 30-something degree temperature last night, spring is actually here. Yesterday was the red-letter day in astronomy, when the sun crosses directly over the equator on its path northward leading to summer, the vernal equinox. There certainly is a lot of change in the air and in the world around us this time of year. Trees are starting to blossom, flowers are sprouting, and as much as I try to stop them, weeds are coming up all over my lawn. Now, I've never had lawn envy before I moved here but my front lawn has become kind of a personal challenge for me this year. We're trying to use all natural and organic herbicides and fertilizers, but I'll tell you, some of these weeds are really testing my resolve. <laughs> I know the last thing you want to have happen is for a weed to grow up enough that it goes to seed, because then you're not just dealing with one weed, you got a whole bunch more to worry about. I think I have a plan this year, but we'll have to wait and see how things actually pan out. Now, there are certainly a lot of farms in northern Alabama, but I wouldn't necessarily consider us to be an agrarian society, at least not like it was in Israel when Jesus was around. We know Jesus grew up in a carpenter's house and probably learns a good deal about carpentry from his earthly father, from Joseph. But it's also apparent that Jesus was more interested in the metaphorical aspects of farming rather than the biological or the economic characteristics. For example, we hear this morning how he told his disciples and some Greeks that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, what was Jesus trying to say? I don't think the writer of John's Gospel was trying to prove Jesus's prowess in farming or that he had a green thumb in his last days on earth. But instead, Jesus was taking perhaps the most common, everyday, mundane object known to the Judeans and making it represent something divine, transcendent, and utterly amazing. Now, since I'm neither a first-century Judean, or for that matter, have ever had any exposure to wheat other than buying flour in the grocery store, I decided to embark on a little Wikipedia quest to satisfy my curiosity about this. It turns out that wheat berries, the seeds, dry up on the stalk, eventually falling off and landing in the soil. Now, to someone like me and the common onlooker, that grain appears to be dead. What was once lush and green and full of life on the stalk has become dry, brown, hard, dead. So how then could a first century farmer in Israel explain how placing this small dead grain of wheat into the soil 
result in an entirely new living wheat plant, itself producing 50 new seeds. If you think about it, this was before modern science explained all that, and each new wheat plant that sprang up must have appeared nothing short of a miracle, a mini resurrection of sorts occurring thousands of times each year in a farmer's plot. Jesus uses this rich metaphor, not only because each and every one of his hearers could immediately relate to those images, but because it explained extremely powerful and revolutionary messages as well. Jesus is telling those inquisitive Greeks that like the grain of wheat, he must die to fulfill his purpose on earth. But just as that single grain can produce a plant with 50 new seeds, by dying a human death and then rising from the tomb, Jesus offers new life to all humankind. That sounds well and good, doesn't it? But then what are we supposed to do with the next verse that we hear? Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Does that mean that God wants us to be miserable every day of our lives? So we may eventually somehow earn our way into the heavenly banquet? No, I don't think that's it. But it does mean that we are to love this community of life established by Jesus' death and resurrection more than our own selfish needs and desires. That's really not a new message, is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Why then is it so difficult for us to live fully into our Christian lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And before you start to be too hard on yourself, just know that you're not alone. When I started seminary in New York City, the wall of our chapel right behind the altar was also the exterior wall of the seminary. And on the other side was the sidewalk and 21st Street. There was a woman who lived on the other side of that wall, on the sidewalk. Everybody knew it. Everybody saw her each time we walked in and out of the seminary gates. I wonder why then it took an entire year, an entire year of all of us shamefully walking past her and not making eye contact every single day before my class finally got together and decided to talk to her and ask her what help she might need. There we were, educated people in seminary, striving to learn what we needed to know for ordained ministry, now I'll tell you what, Syl, that was her name, Syl taught me more about being a Christian than any professor I had or any book that I read for class. She taught me that in order to truly love another person, I had to get off my high horse and engage them on an equal human level. No matter how educated I thought I was, or how much better I thought I was than she, 
I was forced to let a little piece of me die. Actually, it was a big piece of me called my ego. And in the end, it's something that I found that I actually hated. I wanted that aspect of my being, which kept me from loving unconditionally, to go away, to die. Now, contrary to what some of us were taught growing up, myself included, being a Christian is not all fun and games. In fact, it can be pretty hard work. Beginning with our baptism, we're charged to seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And while at least in theory, this seems like a simple task, we always find ways to mess things up. Whether it's the differences between us based on race, religion, gender, age, or socioeconomic class, when the rubber hits the road, none of these really matter in the eyes of God. And I don't recall any one of them ever causing Jesus to withhold his love from someone. But then again, Jesus is a pretty tough act to follow. We, on the other hand, are completely human and are faced with this constant inner battle between doing what Jesus calls us to do and what we want to do for ourselves. The key is being able to realize the difference between the two and to allow God's grace to mediate that conflict through the Holy Spirit. In our opening collect this morning, we prayed that God would grant us the grace to love what he commands and desire what he promises. That among the swift and varied changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. As we enter into this home stretch of Lent, I encourage all of us to pay attention and recognize what those barriers are that exist that keep us from loving unconditionally. What aspects of our being do we need to let go of so that they may die and in turn allow us to grow and blossom into the images of God we are created to be? And next week, as we begin to retrace the steps Jesus took from his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem to his agonizing death on the cross, and finally to that glorious resurrection from the tomb, know that the same God that triumphed over sin and death is alive and working through each and every one of us today. By his death and resurrection, we are all members of the body of Christ. Let's embrace this responsibility entrusted to us. And with all our actions and with God's grace, may we all draw others to the love of Christ.